Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast from Sports Pro Live, virtually anyway, to talk about the second day of our flagship conference. I hope you enjoyed it, if you caught any of it. If not, there's still time to catch up on demand and there's time to catch up with the thoughts of Sports Pro Editorial Director Michael Long. Hi Mike. Hello Owen, how are you doing? Not bad, Mike. Not bad. How are you after two days of, uh, of of pointing the editorial team around the virtual conference floor? Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, mind is slightly fried. Um, had a inhumane amount of screen time over the last couple of days, um, but we've pulled through, and I think it came together pretty well in the end. Good. Frazzled mind. Exactly what we want when you're going to be talking about things uh, at some kind of length. Um, we also have uh, Seven League consulting partner, Charlie Beale. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Owen. Hello, Michael. Hey, Charlie. And coming on the Sports Pro podcast for the first time, I believe, Swipe Right PR founder and director, Kirsty Enfield. Hi, Kirsty. Hello, everyone. Lovely to meet you and talk to you again. Um, we're going to be looking at a few aspects of, uh, of, of the Sports Pro Live experience. Kirsty will be talking to you a bit about a couple of the sessions you've done on esports and um, Charlie, uh, you were helming a couple of our, our closed roundtables. Uh, so we're going to talk to you a bit about the kind of networking side and, and constructive uh, solution finding side of the event. Uh, but Mike, uh, why don't we drop in with you first and talk a bit about some of your highlights of day two? Yeah, I mean, too many to mention, isn't there, Owen? So where do we start? Um, I guess we can Start at the beginning, Gary Neville, um, former England footballer, of course, um, current Sky Sports pundit, and now um, investor slash co-owner of Buzz 16 Productions, um, open proceedings at midday UK time in the big interview, uh, talking about the future of content. Don't know if you guys managed to tune into to that session, but um, obviously Gary being a straight talking, no nonsense uh, type, um, kind of tells it like it is. Um, it was a um, very interesting discussion, uh, talking about authenticity um, in content, how you work with um, athletes um, and it kind of, um, yeah, the future of, of content generally, his involvement in it. Obviously, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a public figure. People know him for the kind of front end of what he does, but actually behind the scenes, he's, he's there beavering away, running all kinds of businesses, obviously um, a part owner of Salford City. So he was talking about his ambitions for, um, for the club who are now in League Two, I believe, um, having been promoted on several occasions. So um, yeah, interesting to hear from him in, in, a, in a Sports Pro Live or Sports Pro event setting. Mm. Uh, certainly novel for from my perspective but um did you guys manage to tune in for that one i missed it i'm afraid i was uh i was elsewhere um and i believe looking at the agenda kirsty you were too yes exactly and uh it was nice to have to compete with uh with gary as well so that was great thank you guys <laughs> um <laughs> luckily luckily enough mike i did catch a little bit of it um yeah. and we will have just a just a snippet in the second half of the podcast but I thought um, one of the things that was interesting, obviously he's a guy who 
wears a lot of hats, as you uh, as you intimated there. But one of the things that was quite interesting as a player, he had this reputation for being quite driven and um, knew what he was about and knew where he wanted to go and knew what to do with the resources he had. And he certainly seems to have that same kind of focus, um, albeit he's a, he's a very personable guy as well, but a very kind of good sense of how he can approach things and apply a bit of structure, which I thought was was quite interesting. What else did you encounter today that that uh, that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, I think uh, another session that really leapt out, it was obviously one that um, was due to feature at, at live this year back in April before we were forced to postpone the event. Um, but um, Andrea Rajazani um, in session with, with George Pine, uh, masterfully moderated by Drew Barrand. Um, yeah, a really engaging um, session talking all things private equity, um, financing in, in sport generally, sports tech investment, uh, the emergence of SPACs, which are an all new phenomenon, uh, seemingly, um, but uh, a real standout trend um, for this year Yeah. Um, in particular. Um, but yeah, two guys who clearly know their stuff, um, know their way around the sports industry, absolutely, and, and sports media in particular. Um, Rajrazani especially just is is one of those um, one of those guys, isn't he? He just kind of knows the lie of the land and has his kind of eyes across the sports media landscape globally. Um, obviously, encountered a few issues here in the UK, but uh, Eleven Sports, um, which is obviously part of his Acer Ventures um, portfolio, along with Leeds United and several other businesses, he's been on a bit of a run of investments recently. Um, but yeah, no, interesting to hear that, you know, two of those um, two kind of leaders in the sports investment space uh, talking about their rationale for investing um, and their, their strategy. And, and and they're both obviously um, very hands on types as well. They don't they don't just look to invest and and, and turn a profit and, and, and exit. They um, they look to really run the businesses, grow the businesses. They talked about working with management teams and the people in charge to really uh, essentially investing in people rather than the the idea itself or the company itself or the product itself so yeah really interesting to hear from both of them as well yeah I mean we've seen some some interesting effects of um of brewing investment obviously we've had Delta Trey involved with the event here um a couple of follow-up questions though for you Mike first of all what is a SPAC just for the benefit of anyone who hasn't been following some of the investment news in the last couple of weeks now you're testing me Owen you're testing me on my ability to uh to to keep tabs on these things um a spac is according to george pine anyway uh well it's obviously a, it's, it's a special purpose acquisition company um and what do they do why are they growing in popularity uh george pine summed it up uh, pretty uh well um it's all to do with uh, the difficulties of, of going public. Obviously, there's uh, certainly a number of notable businesses recently who have run into to issues um, going public, um, but it's a way of generating liquidity. Um, essentially, I hope I'm um, regurgitating this knowledge, uh, you know, <laughs> well enough to come across as, a, as if I know what I'm talking about vaguely. Um, but yes, obviously, the, the knock-on effect of receiving investment accepting investment from a SPAC means that you do go public eventually and then you have the uh the the pros and cons that come with that so um obviously George Pine could uh any anyone who's interested <laughs> check it out on demand you can get it get it from the from the man himself rather than filtered through me but yeah but, that, that's how I understand it but I guess sources of liquidity being 
at a bit of a premium as they are. We're, we're probably going to hear that term yeah. a fair bit more in the year ahead. The other bit that I caught briefly um, in that session was uh, Andrea talking about uh, building something akin to, or an ambition to build something akin to the kind of city football group model of having like a, a family of, of football clubs. Mm. Um, you know, I know that United Leeds United have had some investment from the San Francisco 49ers, who's, um, uh, we had Moon Javid uh, give a presentation at the end of the day, if people want to check that out as well on the platform. Um, but what, how, how far did he expand on those ambitions, Andrea? Yeah, he um, he obviously elaborated on it. I know it's been reported. Um, it's kind of documented that he, um, you know, could perhaps um, look to replicate um, something along the lines of City Football Group or what um, Red Bull have done with these kind of multinational um, club networks. Um, I think he sees it probably less from the from the commercial perspective as perhaps some um, City Football Group have done more from a sporting and and a player development perspective. Interestingly, I spoke to Andre on his way up to Leeds last night before the, the, their game. Um, interviewed him in the in the car on his way up there, and he elaborated a little bit more on it. But um, yeah, he's looking to to build out any kind of network um, that he does look to build out eventually in uh, within Europe, rather than expanding things too far. And I think that um, kind of ties into that player development piece. You know, he wants he wants to ensure that any clubs that he would um, look to bring into that network were of a certain standard and were close enough essentially to the to the mothership if, if Leeds you know became that um, to, to to become real feeder teams for the kind of main Premier League club within that network mm. um, so yeah it's an interesting space I think he's um, he's excited about it. He's, he said he's been approached by uh, various people I mean he's getting approached uh, approaches left right and center of people wanting to to invest in what he's doing and, and people wanting him to invest in what they're doing. So it's, he's a kind of obviously a conduit for um, investment within to, you know, into the, into the sports industry. Um, and he's also uh, then looking to invest himself in the, in the technology space um, primarily. But yeah, as you say, he's got, got an investment partnership with, with the 49ers and their enterprises um, unit and um, obviously linked in with QSI and in, in Qatar as well. But uh yeah, I think it's a case of um, watch this space because he's he's, got, he's certainly got some ideas and uh, lofty ambitions. Yeah, and just to clarify for the benefit of any COVID marshals who might be listening, he was in the car yesterday, but you were calling him remotely, yeah. I'm guessing. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Social social distance plus. Um, Kirsty, I want to get onto uh, your two sessions in just a sec, but was there anything else that caught your eye? across the two days um i think from from my perspective uh, so i the i suppose i view um all of the events that you guys do with um uh, i suppose very sort of high esteem as does the the esports industry i think the 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 um the level of your speakers are always second to none that always stands out to me and it also makes it much easier for for me to to pitch the events to our clients as well so thank you for that um, but yeah, I suppose um, I, from, in all honesty, I was very focused on uh, on what you guys were doing on the the esports side, and working very closely with the lovely uh, William uh, William Tubbs. I'm gonna I'm gonna give him a little shout out there. Two, two shout outs and two podcasts for Will. There we go, because <laughs> you guys always um, always deliver on some very interesting esports content, and the fantastic thing is that it's never the same as you know what we hear at other 
sports events or even some of the esports events that you know that we um that we work with as well so um so yeah thank you for that well that's very kind of you Kirsty. you had um two panels one was uh or rather two sessions one was a panel looking at esports after covid uh, and the other was an interview with uh, ryan Pessoa, who is a, a pro fifa player for manchester city um let's let's take the first one first i mean the, the relationship between esports and the sports industry is always interesting in that, you know, levels of understanding yeah. may vary for one thing. Um, but certainly there was a great deal of focus on it in the spring when there was no live sport happening. Um, and I guess because of the nature of consumption and the fact that so much has been happening remotely, um, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of models in esports that are a point of interest for people in the sports industry. What were, what were some of the things that came up in, in the session that you did today? Um, I think, uh, firstly, we, we sort of did a, a little bit of a recap on, um, I suppose, how how we pivoted um, as soon as quarantine and, and lockdown happened. And I think that's it's really important um, because it plays a lot to the sort of the positive sentiment that the esports industry is feeling at the moment. Um, I um, I stated a couple of stats. Everyone likes stats. I'm going to repeat them. But um, <laughs> Twitch recorded like an increase of... Uh, of a third in their audience in March. And within the first week of quarantine, video game playing was up 75%. And that's just the first week. Now, in general, we've always known video games and esports to have um, a very high level of engagement, fantastic for building community. But the difference with this was that it was garnering a lot of mainstream attention because all of the big name teams, players, celebrities from sports were turning to esports to create their content. And on the esports side, and we're not just talking about you know, certain like uh, sim uh, simulation games like FIFA or racing. We were, t- were talking about celebrities like Alice Genge, um, you know, who were playing League of Legends with Excel Esports. So, you know, firstly, it helped to, in, in my opinion, it helped to um, create another legitimate layer for, for esports. It also helped to normalize it slightly as well, um, because obviously the idea of sort of what a gamer is, especially when you're talking about a game like League of Legends, you have a very different mindset of who actually plays these games. But realistically it is anyone and everyone um so i think i think you know the i think quarantine went a long way to to show sort of what a what a gamer looks like and who's playing games and then i suppose second to that was the digital aspect of everything we discussed at length um you know the learnings that came out of quarantine and it's not to say i think you know it, it, we would be silly to say that esports wasn't affected at all we definitely were much in the same way as sports, we did not have any live events. And that's a really incredible way for us to gain big, big brand sponsors. That's where a lot of our big teams are able to engage with fans in a whole other way. And moving that to a completely online remote setup is very challenging. Um, there's there's a lot of issues around competitive integrity. There's a lot, a lot of issues with how you know, player houses are, are set up and how do you create a whole production like studio in a, in a bedroom? It's incredibly challenging. But I think one thing that really shines through is that we managed to do it. We managed to do it incredibly fast as well. Um, and I think that's added a lot of maturity to the industry because we overcame those challenges with, with ease. Um, and outside of this is uh, outside of this panel, um, uh, I was working on a, a charity event called You Are Not Alone in the games industry a few months ago. One thing that I noted was how difficult it was for a traditional linear um, broadcast platform to adopt new types of content. Whereas on the esports side, 
it was very, very easy. Um, and like motorsport games, they had the Le Mans 24 hour virtual and taking that to, you know, combining what drivers are experiencing with, with um, their own simulation rigs versus what sim racers are, are used to. And I think it's helped connect the dots a lot more. Um, so from, from our perspective, and I think this came through from the panel, you know, that, that trajectory of growth, I think it was, um, I think it was uh, definitely heightened during quarantine. Um, but I also think that there's, I think we'll, you know, we'll see a lot uh, more of that stability moving forward. I think everyone always questions the value of esports. And I think um, in many ways that really, that it's really helped to show our value. Now, obviously that some of those quarantine effects are, are still persisting in that, you know, it's not possible to, to stage the kind of uh, the big set piece events that tournaments like League of Legends will build to. Um, so what are what are some of the priorities for the esports industry um, over, over the next kind of six to 18 months, let's say, while we're in this little period of uncertainty, to put it mildly? Um, I'd say it's quite a difficult question to answer just because it is, in, it is incredibly broad. But I would say, um, uh, from my perspective, it is a case of doing what we're, what we're currently doing. Um, I think the way we handle our content is second to none. Um, and, you know, Ryan was talking earlier, um, our Man City player, who's also a Red Bull athlete, he was talking about the content that he was pre- creating with Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, Alexander um, and, and a few others. And I think that I think we'll see I think we'll still see more of that connection um but I think I think really it is a case of um I think really it's a, it's a case of you know it's a continued effort and I think we're, we're going to see like the League of Legends World Championship they're all still broadcasting out of I want to say Shanghai I really hope I'm accurate with that and right don't kill me for saying the wrong city um but you know they are I'm still expecting some incredible opening ceremony um, because they're, you know, the, the, I think the way we create our events, it's not just about playing a game. It's still about a level of entertainment and it's still about sort of how we utilizing the best in technology that we can. I think we're going to see even more of that. I think everyone's going to be pushing themselves as much as they can um, and trying to move the industry that that little bit more forward. Yeah, let's um, let's talk a little bit more about that session uh, that you did with Ryan as well, um, as you mentioned, Manchester City player, also an esports athlete, some quite spectacular branding work um, that he managed <laughs> to get into a, a remote session, which was very, very impressive. We don't even um, ask for that. I just want to flag that. That isn't like, um, that's not me being a PR, like that's that's him. <laughs> that was all him. So, What, um, obviously that, that, as you said, that's been a big point of contact between traditional sports and esports has been on that individual level and you know, whether it's Red Bull getting their athletes into uh, the Formula One competitions earlier this year, people like um, Ben Stokes getting involved, um, or whether it's the kind of activity you were talking about there with with Ryan and, and Raheem Sterling, or, you know, it lends itself quite well to that kind of, um, you know, fairly organic, I guess, for want of a better term, um, uh, crossover. Yeah. So how, where are we going to see uh, organizations in esports building on that kind of momentum and what opportunities is it going to create um, in the in the sports industry um, I uh, I suppose the 
the the fantastic thing about the the content that Ryan created, and also for for motorsport games, actually, it's it's a very easy story to tell. Um, the connection to sports is is obviously there, and I think that's the same for any simulation game. So whether that that's like that, that even in, even the NBA, for example, um, and because they already have um, a load of their uh, because they already have that sort of celebrity connection. Um, we're going to have FIFA 21 launching, I want to say October 9th, but early October. Um, and I, you know, I would assume that they are going to have a whole competitive or esports aspect to that launch, um, syncing, you know, all the different professional players that they've got alongside all of their celebrities. Um, I know the NBA on the NBA side, um, you know, they, uh, they have an extremely impressive celebrity lineup that they tap into, um, not just from a mainstream, not just for mainstream audiences, but it does it does definitely heighten the you know the it does capture um, you know a young person's attention and also helps to sort of uh, create like a, a whole new wave of excitement for like professional gaming as well um, from a traditional sort of sports sense, but also. Um, from on the esports side, so I think really it will depend on the specific game ecosystem. I think if you're talking more on the simulation front, that connectivity is always going to be there. And if anything, I think that's that's probably going to grow. Whether or not we're going to see this momentum staying for say like Counter Strike or League of Legends, that's really hard to say. Um, and I think it really will come up come down to sort of the the individual events that that we have um, going over the next few months. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at SportsPro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to SportsPro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Charlie, we've kept you waiting a little while. Um, you've had a, a slightly different SportsPro Live experience from the rest of us because you've been um, hosting a couple of the roundtable rooms, which for people who uh, who weren't involved live, were kind of more more controlled, sealed off environments to, to give people a chance to to share some ideas on on specific topics. Yes, in fact, I moderated two sessions with the same topic, um, and that topic was live streaming and how that is affecting broadcast. Uh, both sessions were attended by a different combination of people. And what I found most fascinating was the conversations were completely different, but no less interesting in both cases. Um, the format lends itself well to, as you say, that Chatham House rules type of um, engagement, whereby people realise they're not being um, filmed they can ask open questions amongst peers. Um, and what I was slightly dreading was that um, there would be a bunch of people in a small room trying to sell to each other. And I think <laughs> that sometimes does happen in, in, in both physical and virtual conference environments. But in, in today's case, it was really good because um, people were engaging around the subject matter and their expertise in the subject matter rather than, uh, and using that, frankly, to sell themselves rather than um, doing a direct pitch. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is there's some crossover with, you know, with what we were talking about with, with Kirsty as well, which is this need for uh, to take something that's usually in a, a very different kind of, mostly physical, but a kind of multi-channel environment and, and just put it specifically in a digital space. So, you know, and, and what the effects of that are, obviously the content side, it's slightly odd 
kind of looking at your own face moving for um, uh, five, six minutes at a time when you're when you're speaking. Um, but generally speaking, it's, it's possible to deliver the content um, in, in a fairly similar format. But the networking side of it and some of the uh, some of the other structures around the event experience are, are very different. I mean, what how do you feel like that dynamic played out in this B2B space first? And then, you know, maybe we can talk a bit about how that's reflected in, in some of the other digital environments that, that the sports industry is finding itself in this year. Yeah, sure. So having attended a number of your excellent physical events in the past, um, including Sports Pro Live last year at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, it is a, a different experience. And, and I'm sure your research and, and market analysis shows that people attend events for different reasons. Uh, some people are interested in the content that you've you've laid on. Others are purely there to network. And then there's a social component. And if I were to evaluate uh, this online conference on those three things, as you say, the content itself can be delivered quite easily. Um, the networking is harder. Um, and, and that's largely because um, you don't get those serendipitous moments. Um, and so whilst the, the, the conversations and roundtables were very productive, um, for example, Michael, um, if I'd been at the event, I probably would have walked past you and waved. And that would have been a connection, but we didn't walk past one another and wave. Uh, we were in separate sessions and, um, you know, I miss you. Um, <laughs> that said, um, the I do feel like I got to meet 15 or so people today that I didn't know before, understand their businesses, their challenges, their services and their perspectives. Um, and that's hugely valuable. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like uh, do you feel like people who were making use of of those facilities went into it with more of a focus than perhaps there might be at a physical event? Where, as you say, there is that air of serendipity. There's that air of you know being able to go and uh, and wander in on something that's happening on stage, or you know just get talking to somebody because you you notice uh, a name tag or or what have you. Do you think that there's even though perhaps it's happening on a smaller scale, that side of it, uh, are people going in with a, a much more fixed idea of, of what they want to get out of it? I didn't feel like there was that degree of intentionality. Um, certainly in the sessions that I was a part of, I think what you did quite cleverly was limit the size of the sessions such that everyone, I think, felt obliged to participate rather than sit back and watch a stream and perhaps... Uh, uh, zone out as I'm sure we've all been guilty of doing on on various conference calls um in the last six months so everyone was on on their game and they felt like they had to contribute an opinion or a, or a thought and um I, I don't know if that's testimony to the, the particular people that we had involved in the sessions or, or the size or the format but I, I'm sure it's a combination of all of those how how differently I mean you have done a lot of time you know you, you guys at seven league work with companies in, in explaining and exploring the digital space with them mm. um how differently do some of these environments operate and on, on we're going out into the kind of the fan world here now instead but thinking about um something like how you know people discover things or how an environment like twitch might operate or 
um, as opposed to the kind of the environments that sports organizations are used to working in, which are, are big and open and people kind of get whatever experience they want out of them. But the experiences being laid on is, is kind of the same for everybody. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. The the thing there there are a couple of points that you've already raised and and perhaps a session today that I could speak to. Um Damien Burns, the um MD of Twitch and Mayor, was was on a very interesting panel uh, earlier. And I think he spoke about sports need to ensure that you're providing an entertainment experience that involves the audience that feeds off where they participate in the outcome of the event or the shared experience. Um, And I think that has uh, resonance even for a B2B event. There's an expectation now that we are participating in content, not just consuming it. Um, So the fact that people, delegates have been uh, encouraged to participate in these roundtables as you've, as you've managed to achieve uh, in sports pro life equally it's just, it's the exact same thing you know um kirsty you'll see this in esports there's there's an expectation that um viewers are are players themselves um they expect to be recognized and endorsed by the creators they follow they um they meet in spaces where they participate in the content uh, whether that's as a result of gaming um culture coming into kind of more mainstream media broadcast consumption landscape i'm not sure um but that trend will only continue i suspect yeah i think that's a i think that's an interesting point obviously our our live events our physical events we've we've sought to bring a kind of interactive element to it haven't we the audience engagement where you can answer questions through your phone and through the official app and things like that you know we've all been sat in um sessions where it goes to a Q&A and there's that awkward silence who's going to put their hand up and ask a question people don't like public speaking and um and things like that it can make people feel uncomfortable so we've we obviously tried to drive audience engagement in our live events and I think that's now seamlessly kind of transitioning to what we're doing on the virtual side of things certainly since since lockdown you've seen it with our insider series that level of engagement that interactive um immersive kind of element and really getting people involved I think people are kind of unshackled a bit more and they're more willing to fire in those questions and um, I think it makes you feel feel part of the event and I think um, the you know the difficulty is for those who are moderating trying to uh, keep one eye on uh, the questions coming in whilst um, you know uh, managing proceedings but I think it's um, I think it's the the way it's going and I think as we you know presumably as we get into the as you were saying before in that that six month to 18 month period where live events do start coming back but in a kind of dramatically altered format or um, smaller scale I think you'll probably see that kind of hybrid uh, hybrid model you know that fusion of virtual and, and and physical becoming a real thing you know one of the great things for us as an events company obviously doing live events we'll continue to do that but what we can do on the virtual side of things in terms of bringing in those people that aren't able to attend the events or speak at the events um, and, and and reaching a new audience you know we've seen it um, you know, people in, in kind of more far, far flung places rather than the US and Europe, for example, um, attending the events virtually. So, yeah, I think there's there's opportunity in amongst all of the uh, disruption and chaos that we've all had to, to deal with over the last few months. I think it'll be interesting in, in terms of how you curate future events when hopefully we're all able to meet again, because I, I, the traditional events model has been 
the events close to the people in the room and then maybe afterwards they get uh, external audiences will get a video on demand or you know releases via podcasts of stuff that's already happened but they don't get the opportunity to be in the event and whether this is uh is a step change in how that uh, you approach that i'm not sure well we shall see but it's a thought that's going to take us unfortunately to the end of this part of this sports pro podcast wrapping up sports pro live we are going to have some clips from the event itself uh, just after the break but for now I'm going to say thank you to Charlie Beal thank you to Michael Long thanks Owen and to Kirsty Enfield thanks all we'll be back with some bits of sessions just after this help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast subscribe like and share our content on social join the conversation on Twitter with a hashtag Sports Pro Pod And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice? And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast, where we're going to be running through a few cuts from our virtual stage on day two. Uh, There was lots to choose from, with speakers from Liverpool FC, the San Francisco 49ers, Barcelona, Visa and BT Sport among those playing a key role uh, and even our own Nick Meacham making an appearance. But we've picked out some clips that give a diverse reflection of the issues animating the industry just now and some of the thinking that's emerged to tackle them. As mentioned in part one, day two was opened by former Manchester United and England footballer Gary Neville appearing in his guise as a director of Buzz 16 Productions. He shared a wide array of thoughts about content and the media ecosystem with Rebel Ventures founder Craig Howe. Fittingly enough, Gary fielded a question late in the piece about just how far athletes in the public eye should be willing to express themselves. Um, it's, it's an interesting question that because we, we demand that young players they're more forthright in interviews they come out and um are more accepting of doing interviews that they become that they, they, they demonstrate leadership skills leadership characteristics we always sort of accuse young people of these days of not having the leadership skills of people of our era i hear it said quite a lot they don't make them like they used to whereas when actually you hear a young player or a young athlete come out and offer views that might not be potentially um the norm they get criticized for it you know he used to stay in his lane he shouldn't be speaking like that so we've got to be really careful i think that you know as a young player you can micromanage them too much you can over pr them you know sometimes you see the twitter feeds of, of athletes and it's quite obvious that they're not being uh the, the tweets and the instagram posts are not being delivered by the player themselves it's obvious it's, it's a, a pr machine a brand machine behind them I don't like that. I don't like that. For me, players should have independent thinking. The athletes should have independent thinking. They should they should attend their own contract talks. They should attend their financial meetings. They should go to their PR meetings. They should write their own tweets. They should get used to being good at the various different things in life that they're going to have to be good at when they're 35 and beyond, when the big machine around them leaves them and the football club's not there anymore. So for me, during your football career, I would take ownership. 
of your own content, of your own life. Yes, of course, you have to be guided by accountants, by lawyers, by people who know what they're doing. But I think we should encourage uh, speech, free speech, um, contentious speech to an extent. You know, the, more, the most interesting interviews that you'll ever hear are by athletes who've got a personality and a character that maybe make you think something different, that maybe you don't always agree with. So I think we, we shouldn't punish, we shouldn't hold it against players when they are different than what would be, you know, how many interviews do you see after a football match where you get the same, same old stuff being spouted out? Oh, we were unlucky today. We kept a clean sheet. We did this. You know, when someone comes out and says, look, I was, I was appalling today. I was nowhere near good enough. I should have dealt with this. He made a mistake. It's like, oh, he's gone rogue, but he's not gone rogue. He's just speaking the truth. He's talking about what would go on in a dressing room in public. So there's a, there's, a hap, there's a sort of a balance between going rogue and there's a balance between being too what would be pure and not offering anything. And I think that's where I've tried to put my analysis over the last 10 years. You can't just, you have to criticise at times. You have to demonstrate passion. You have to have a rant at times. But sometimes you have to be considered. You have to show tolerance. And it's that balance of making sure that you're always honest with it. People know sometimes you can't say everything you want to say. People accept that, but you have to say something. You have to say something. And the one thing that Scott taught me very early on in, at Sky, and it's something that was taught to me in England when I was doing the interviews is, what's your headline going to be? Know what your headline is going to be before you go into a show, before you go into an interview. You create that headline, give it to them. The best managers, Jose Mourinho, Alex Ferguson, they know their headline before they walk into a press conference and they'll distract you sometimes away from what actually is the real story to a headline that might not be the story, but they've pushed you there. And it's a real good quality. Sometimes before like a Super Sunday or a Monday Night Football, I know what my headline's going to be. I know what the... Uh, I know what the what would be the transferable information that's going to make it on Twitter, on social media. We've learned what we can sort of succeed with and what we won't succeed with. You cannot, everything you say can't be a headline, but you've got to know where you're going with the outcome of an interview or with the outcome of a show before you go into it. What number would you associate with Michael Jordan? 23? Sure. Probably 45 as well. But as Global Director of Sports Specialisation Simon Miller revealed, those aren't the numbers they think about when they think about Jordan at Grace Note. Simon was speaking alongside Roku's Marion Ranchet and Lou Bolden of Very Matrix on a panel about innovation in sports media. The importance of helping fans find the content that matters to them was a big theme, and as Simon explained, that all starts with metadata. Well, this really plays to the heart of what Gracenote um, has set out to do going back a number of decades, and obviously starting in the linear world, and as we're talking about OTT, exploding into the OTT space as well. And it, in from our perspective, it all starts with metadata, and metadata that is eligible with IDs. Um, that's the basis on which you're able to identify somebody who's expressed an interest in a particular genre, uh, a particular sport, a particular player, a particular league, and then begin to make uh, references across that content uh, in order to serve what they uh, have an interest in. And that's, that's the way our clients operate. So the investment is one in the metadata from 
companies like ours, and then in the recommendation engines, uh, which uh, of which there are numerous, and we work in partnership with with some of those in order to uh, provide that UI to the end user. Um, so if I take an example of, if you take Michael Jordan, um, we refer to him internally with a number, 69748 is the Michael Jordan number. And whether he is appearing on Saturday Night Live or whether it's Last Dance that you're looking for or whether it's Space Jam or whether it's him appearing on A Another Chat Show. And of course, he played some baseball and not to forget, he was a significant player for the, the Chicago Bulls. That same ID persists across our entire system. And that's what enables the search and discovery to take place and the cross-referencing and the, and the personalization so that if you express an interest in any one of those things that Michael Jordan is associated with or Michael Jordan himself, then all of that content cross-platform can be served up. And that's a crucial thing because not all of those elements that I've described will be in one particular OTT streaming catalog. It, it, they may they may be across a number of different places. And crucial to uh, the, the experience for the consumer is to not have to worry about whether it's in this bucket or that bucket or this platform or that platform. Uh, and that's where a, a persistent ID served from Companies like Grace Note, and, and I think we have a, a standout capability in this in this area. In combination with the recommendation engine, is the way in which we serve up uh, that particular type of content. Finally, the biggest questions in sport are the biggest questions facing all of us. How can we act as better citizens, better neighbours, and better custodians of an ever more fragile planet? Formula One has been thinking about that more than ever in the past couple of years, developing a commitment to net zero carbon emissions by 2030 as part of a wider overhaul of sustainability policy. It's also embarked on a significant diversity and inclusion drive. Yafganga Kamaran, Director of Strategy and Business Development at the world's premier motorsport series, laid out those plans in a chat with Matthew Campelli, founder of the Sustainability Report. Here are a few excerpts from their conversation. Yeah, we have. So we um, do what's known as sentiment tracking when we announce uh, a big campaign. And this looks at social media reaction, press coverage, general fan response, um, wider community response. Any score above 60 is viewed as very good. And when we announced our sustainability plans last November, we achieved a score of 82, which is actually the highest um, we've received for any campaign since Liberty Media took over the uh, the organization and the sport in 2017. So we've already seen from fans and the wider community a lot of positivity and actually from our partners too. You know, a number of our partners want to work with us um, to execute against our sustainability ambitions. And, you know, although I can't talk in, in too much detail today about it, there are some very active discussions with prospective partners who want to come into the sport because we now have a very credible sustainability plan. Let's start with the kind of practical sense and, and talk, let's talk about the strategy now. Uh, you announced it, I think, in November or October last year in 2019. So it's just coming up to a, a year since you announced the the, uh, the ambitions to become carbon neutral. Let's talk through the kind of process, Yath. I mean, what were the kind of practical steps you put into place to lay that foundation before you announced it last year? Yeah, so I think the first thing to understand is, 
you know, sustainability is such a broad theme. It covers the environmental, economic and social side. And there, which area makes sense for us as a sport to get involved in? So we undertook what's known as a materiality matrix, where we looked at 197 different issues within sustainability in the broader sense. And we spoke to different members of our community, our fans, people who aren't fans at the moment, who we call naysayers, um, to understand what they think is important for F1 to look at. Obviously, our, our executive team here, the FIA, who are the governing body of motorsports, our promoters, our sponsors, our broadcasters. We even spoke to some journalists as well, actually, to get their views on what they think we should be tackling. And from that, we got down to a short list, um, which we then sort of worked through internally, which ended up with three key pillars. I've mentioned two of them um, around, you know, essentially CO2 emissions and then sustainable events. The third is very much around diversity and inclusion, um, which we can talk about uh, separately and how we make Formula One more, more diverse and inclusive. So that process of um, going from 197 different issues down to three took some time. I think what took what also took quite a bit of time was ensuring the wider ecosystem supported our efforts. You know, if you think about it, whilst F1 is viewed as this huge global sport, there are only about 500 people who work for the company. Um, there are thousands of people who work for the different teams. We have about 250 different commercial partners invested in the sport. We have location uh, races in over 20 countries on five continents around the world, and they all have very different objectives and ambitions. So getting the wider ecosystem uh, together aligned on this took some time as well. Um, big thing is is also it's all well and good having ambitious targets like being net zero carbon, which everyone's talking about these days. Actually, what's important is do you have a strong, robust implementation plan to execute against that? Um, and so we spent quite a lot of time working through how we're going how we're going to reduce our absolute carbon footprint as well. So that, that was sort of the process working through materiality metrics, which is the most important to us in our ecosystem, working through the implementation plan, getting our stakeholders. Um, on board as well. Let's talk about a bit about the implementation plan now and specifically with regards to lowering your carbon footprint and lowering the carbon emissions carbon emissions of the organization. Firstly, yeah, can you can you give us some idea of you know what your carbon footprint actually is now as an organization and the kind of steps that you've taken thus far to to, to, to bring it down? Sure, yeah. So we did our first ever carbon footprint assessment last year and uh, came out at 256,000 CO2 equivalent tonnes, which covers um, the areas I mentioned, you know, the racing uh, on track all year, all of our travel and all of the kit that we transport around the world, uh, energy consumption at our offices, at our factories, etc. Um, the way that we're going to bring it down is twofold, really. One, from a car perspective, um, we are looking to introduce 100% sustainable fuels uh, that will power Formula One cars. Um, now, the interesting thing is actually the cars going around the track is less than 1% of our overall footprint. But when people think about F1, they do think about the F1 cars themselves. So the brain print is a lot bigger there, um, and we think it's important to tackle it, not just from a perception standpoint, but also, and this is, fingers crossed, would be a real win for us, if we can show the world that it's possible to have the most efficient hybrid engines in the world that are fueled by sustainable fuels that are then applicable to the wider road car industry um, 
and those fuels become what's known as drop-in fuels that you know you can just use in your Mini Cooper, for example. Then actually, the we may potentially have a much bigger impact um, in terms of the decarbonisation of the wider automotive industry, and that's a big goal. Um, but we think we have to push the boundaries if we're to enact real change. And if you think that what 99% of the over one billion vehicles on the planet have an internal combustion engine in them and they're not going away anytime soon, if we can make them a lot more um, environmentally friendly through the fuels that they're using, then hopefully we can have not, not just an impact on our sport, but a positive impact more, more broadly. I know that in some quarters there may be a little scepticism around sustainable fuels and a lot of people will be looking to, I suppose, electromobility as, as, as the way forward. You know, how, how would you kind of address those particular, those particular concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think our view is that there are multiple, there's no sort of one silver bullet. There are multiple ways to achieve what we all want to do, which is, you know, much more sustainable in our case, sport, but also for the wider society, more sustainable automotive industry. You know, I think with electric vehicles, yes, in terms of tailpipe emissions, you don't see them. But if we look at life cycle analysis, you know, for those who are a bit closer to the industry, they know it's, you know, it's not necessarily the cleanest um, area at the moment. And if you think about the lack of recycling of lithium batteries and you, th you think about the raw materials needed in cobalt, et cetera, and who controls them, the lack of lack of supply, et cetera, I think there's, there's some concerns there from a, um, a value chain perspective. You know, with hydrogen fuel cells, which is obviously something that people are looking at over the next five to 10 years, again, really interesting. But at the moment, to, to get the hydrogen that you need, you're actually emitting more CO2 in the process. Um, so again, need to work through that. And for us, you know, our view is we need to ensure first and foremost that we have the most um, exciting racing spectacle possible, which means our cars need to be really fast, need to be able to travel a uh, long distance. To do that, we need you know certain type of fuel and we're trying to make that as environmentally friendly as possible and as i, as I mentioned if 99 percent of uh, all vehicles in the world are having internal combustion en engine in them if we can show to the world that it's possible to have an inc incredibly efficient hybrid engine you know we have a essentially what toyota prius had years ago we've had but almost double the um, efficiency and if we can introduce these sustainable fuels then that will have more, potentially more of a, an impact in terms of decarbonisation of the automotive industry, certainly in the next 10 years or so. Where things go sort of beyond that still to be um, determined, but we think there are multiple routes um, to get to the answer based on infrastructure, based on life cycle analysis, based on performance, etc. So that's the way that we're viewing it. Uh, I know that we're, we've mainly talked about the, the environmental side of things, the, the carbon and the, uh, and the sustainable uh, events as well. But it'd be great to touch a little bit on the diversity and inclusion aspect of the, the plan, because like we say, that is the third key pillar of the plan, and it's very relevant, particularly in, in current times. Can you touch a little bit on that, that plan, uh, Yath, and what your, what your aims and objectives are in, in that respect? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we want to have a Formula One that is as diverse as the world in which we race. Um, as we know, as I just mentioned, the sport isn't as diverse as you, uh, you would think um, or would hope. And to do so, actually, you need to look at things from a systemic basis as opposed to just doing things tactically. And you also, we also want to look at all aspects of the sport as opposed to, you know, for example, just the drivers or just our workforce. So we have a plan in place that covers um, upcoming drivers and how we're going to look to make um, the route into Formula One more accessible. 
we've got plans for our workforce, how we recruit jobs for people from underrepresented backgrounds, um, for the paddocks and the teams themselves and job opportunities again for underrepresented groups. We're looking to go much bigger on STEM education. We have F1 in schools, which has over a million kids taking part in it each year, but we think we can go bigger given we are the most technologically advanced sport in the world and STEM education is just so crucial to the world. We're, we're gonna go bigger on that. And also how we tell the story using presenters, um, creating content that's more diverse uh, or for more diverse audiences. And so, as I said, in a couple of months, you will be seeing some announcements around job opportunities, um, around scholarships for uh, talented young people from diverse backgrounds to go through you know, the engineering route. You know, we are very keen to get involved in karting um, with the FIA, but it's obviously a very convoluted um, path. So that's something we're working heavily on. And then in the years to come, you will see more on STEM education. And we're already doing stuff on the, the content side. If you look at the presenters that we've been using this year, um, and then next year, some new content threads that are going to be coming out that will tap into uh, the diversity of our audience and the locations we go into. Print, digital, events, podcasts, Sports Pro. That is it for this Sports Pro podcast. Hope you've enjoyed our look back across two days of the virtual Sports Pro Live. Keep an eye out for more coverage of the event on sportspromedia.com and in the next edition of the magazine. And if you're keen to catch up on it all, you can always head back to sportsprolive.com. Thanks again to everyone who's dropped into guest on the podcast over the last couple of days. Thanks to all of our speakers and our moderators. Thanks as well to our partners and our delegates. And thanks to you, our listeners. A reminder that we've got Sports Pro Asia coming up in October. The Insider Series back very soon. We'll be resuming our regular podcast schedule next week. But take care until then. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 